You know, for the longest time, I mean, I'm talking two years or so, I, I've uh, known Paul and ministered with Paul and done different things with Paul. And there's always something, I, I always felt like he reminded me of someone or, or I couldn't quite pin it down. I, I just couldn't, uh, thought maybe in a previous lifetime we were brothers or something, I don't know. That was a joke, I'm going to be preaching on the New Age. Um, <laughs> But he was just out there, and we were talking. He was giving the microphone, and last thing he says, go get him, tiger. I'm like, isn't that great? Go get him, tiger. <laughs> That's what he said. I'm kidding. He'll be lying to you if he denies it. <laughs> Paul, come here. Now, it occurred to me, if he had sunglasses on, wouldn't he look like John Belushi? The band, the band. Thank you, thank you. Da 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 da. Yeah, interpret it yourself. Isn't it? All right. Okay, and so I just I finally put uh, the nail on John Belushi. That's who he looks like. The Blues Brothers. Well, this morning we're continuing our, our series on uh, Christianity's toughest competitors, and within that series we have another series going on. Uh, on the New Age Movement, a crash course in the New Age Movement. And I thought it was going to be a one-week thing, and now I know it's going to be a... And I thought it was going to be a two-week thing, and now I run, realize it's going to be at least a three-week thing. Who cares? Uh, turn to Colossians 2.8. That's our, our theme verse for this entire series. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, that's okay. I will read to you what it says. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive. No one, no one captivates you, puts you in bondage through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Mm, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. I'd also like to read oh, another verse in Colossians that we could pay attention to. Here's verse 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility... And the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. You know there that anyone who talks a whole lot about what they have seen in the spiritual realm and makes that sort of the source of their doctrine, the source of their religious authority, Paul calls unspiritual. They're puffed up in their mind. That's why I never read the National Choir. <laughs> you always have people, what are, you know, I went to hell and back, and I, you know, all this other stuff. Paul says that's unspiritual to be talking about all the things you've seen, the angels you've seen, the places you've been. And that verse in particular applies to the New Age movement. One other verse I want to read this morning is from Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, which says, There's a way that seems right unto a man, a way that seems right unto a man, feels right, Hard to think of it not being right, but the end thereof is destruction, or the end thereof is death. Let's pray. Lord, this is an important topic because we're uh, confronting here what is really the dominant uh, counter-Christian spiritual force of our age, of our time, and of this culture. And I understand, and I've even sensed here this morning, that uh, there is opposition to this message. 
Lord, I pray that as I'm speaking this, you would raise up on my behalf people to pray for this message as I'm preaching it. Put it on their hearts, Lord, that they'd be interceding for me because I know just to, just to talk on this is to invite spiritual warfare. And Lord, I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought and succinctness of expression and say what you want to have said here this morning. I need your power because I don't want to step into this on my own. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we uh, basically showed the uh, uh, influence of the New Age movement. We showed how pervasive this movement is. It's not a passing fad. It's not just a... Um, Something that's going to come and go, gonna, you know, just be like bell-bottom jeans or something that's going to be around for a little while and then disappear. We're in the middle of really what's like a cultural revolution. Our, our entire worldview is being changed. The way people see the world and interpret the world is, is being changed. And you can see this influence in a number of different areas. You see it in book sales. You see it in movies. You see it if you know what you're looking for in academics. Uh, you see it among celebrities. You see it in, in uh, the various schools of philosophy and psychology and theology that are dominant today. You see it in the way some scientists, qu uh, quantum physicists are talking. You see it in business. And you see it in education. And you see it in a number of other areas as well. But it's a pervasive movement. In business, I brushed over this pretty quick last week. But it's, there is now a, an entire enterprise of people who, entrepreneurs, who have companies that are there for the sole purpose of helping other companies. And they hold training seminars. And they train employees on how to be more creative and how to work together better and how to, you know, realize, maximize more of their, their potential. This is why this is sometimes called the human potential movement. Sometimes it's called transforming technology. Sometimes it's called organizational development. And a lot of what they say is good stuff. Real good stuff. Which is why this is, can be such a confusing issue. But among some of these companies, some of the time, there are some ideas, some metaphysical presuppositions that creep in that are thoroughly non-Christian. And Paul says, beware that no one deceives you. We need to be aware of them. And some of these business organizations, such as Forum and LifeSpring, you have uh, a thoroughly Eastern metaphysical worldview supplanting the Judeo-Christian worldview. And in an attempt to realize your own inner potentiality and creativity to make you a better employee, they overhaul your entire belief system. Or at least to some degree go in that direction. And we need to be aware of that. There's a course that's taught at Stanford University called Creativity in the Marketplace. And in their own brochure, they say this course will help business people Utilize the resources, their inner resources, through learning Zen meditation, through chanting, through the practice of tarot cards at Stanford University Business School. 35% of the Fortune 500 companies, as I said last week, have budgeted aside money for organizational development or transforming technologies. IBM, RCA, uh, Boeing the Federal Aviation Administration, and many others. And not all of it is bad, and I'm not suggesting that all of it is bad. I'm just saying that some of it, this is one more area where this changing worldview is beginning to influence uh, our, our, our culture. You also see it in education. And I can't go into this very thoroughly. Uh, I would like to, and maybe sometime we'll have a separate sermon just on that, but I'm just learning about this myself. A number of people called me, actually. I've spoke to a number of people who are uh, really up on this subject when it comes to the influence of the New Age in education. 
But there have been a number of curriculums proposed that again have some presuppositions, some worldview presuppositions that are very counter to Christianity, which could be classified New Age. I told you about confluent education uh, last week, proposed in California. Another one was called Project Self-Esteem, proposed in 1982 in Orange County, which included, among other things, children fantasizing or going on an imaginative journey where they would confront a wise man or a wise animal, and that wise man or wise animal would help them realize some of their own inner potentiality or solve some of their conflicts or whatever. They, they uh, taught them on chanting and on meditation and a, and a number of other things. The PTA, the parents' organizations, objected, and so they, they withdrew the program for two years, only to reintroduce it in a different way, taking out some of the religious, the overtly religious language. For example, instead of calling it meditation, they call it centering. Now, that doesn't mean that every time uh, a, uh, um, a teacher says, think about this, or imagine this, or pretend that you're here, that that's new age. I'm not suggesting that at all. But there is a line that can be crossed over where you start to inv invite, and this happens sometimes, Buddha or Muhammad or Krishna or some other wise person into the child's brain, uh, that uh, at the very least the division of church and state is being confused here. And par as parents, we need to be aware of that. Not paranoid, not fearful, not defensive, but just aware and interested and concerned and giving our voice. This is a very pervasive philosophy we're talking about. Values clarification is another area that to some degree is influenced by New Age presuppositions. And values clarification, which is taught really uh, all over the nation, the attempt there is to help children, senior high kids, 10th to 11th graders, get clear on what are their values. What do they think about things? And the way they do it is by posing real difficult ethical dilemmas. When kids aren't sure what is right and wrong in the first place, you pose very difficult ethical dilemmas, and that confuses kids. And you try to get them to think through it. And it's supposed to be morally neutral, it's supposed to be value-free, but it's not. As a number of, of insightful analysis have seen. Because the presupposition to the whole thing is this. Whatever values you arrive at are okay. Every value system is equal. You just have to get clear on what your value system is. And it may be different than Johnny's, and it may be different than Susie's, and it may be different than the teacher's, and it may be different from the parent, your parents, and it may be different from the Bible. But see, there's no objective value system here. It's all basically equal. You've got to find out what's true for you. You've got to find out what's real for you. You've got to find out what your ethics are. And it's thoroughly relativistic. This is no passing fad. This is no temporary movement. We are in the middle of a cultural paradigm shift. The way Western people view the world for the last 300 years has been very naturalistic. It's been secular. We have been influenced by this worldview from the scientific and enlightenment revolution of the 16th and 17th century, which tells us that really there is no spirit realm. Really, there is no spiritual dimension. Really, if there is a God, he's not involved in us. A worldview that systematically rules out uh, the supernatural, rules out miracles, rules out revelation. But we're going through a cultural shift now where people, because they are hungry for the spiritual realm, are questing after it. And the worldview is now changing to something which is more akin to a third world perspective, a more traditional perspective, really. Because people throughout all of history have basically assumed that there's a spiritual dimension and there are spiritual beings that inhabit this world and they influence our life in, in, very, uh, in very influential, drastic ways. And we, for 300 years, have denied what everyone else has always affirmed, but that's beginning to change. Our worldview is shifting. 
And what's happening is that we're seeing a Pandora's box of spiritual influences exploding onto our culture. And in the last 15 years, it's been incredible, and it's escalating. A Pandora's box. Crazy things happening that wouldn't have happened 10, 15 years ago. People reporting incredible conversions and incredible transformations and incredible miracles on the basis of crystal power or the zodiac or astrology or through channeling or through meditation or through Zen or through Hinduism or what have you. And an explosion of these sorts of religious ideas and it's, it's just all around because people's worldview is changing. They're allowing for that. And it's really the kind of worldview that uh, third world countries have had all along. It's understandable that we'd be concerned with this. We'd be paranoid about it, maybe a little bit fearful of it, because we haven't, we're not used to this sort of overt demonstration of non-Christian alternatives. And it can feel threatening. But as I, I concluded last week, and I want to say more about it this week, I really believe that this is good news. I really believe that this is good news. Because what we're facing now, I really believe, is better than what we were facing before. Think about this. Have you ever wondered, you know, some of us have heard missionaries come back from missionary trips or we've read books about missionary experience or some of us are from third world countries ourselves and have experienced the church in the third world. But you hear about what God does over there. Over in Africa, Mozambique, Sri Lanka, Latin America, you hear about how God does these miracles. God moves in a powerful way. Hear about God healing people and delivering people and there's exorcism and all this other kind of stuff. You hear about incredible conversions. I mean, the church in the third world, while the Western church has been losing grip on its culture for the last 300 years, the church in the third world is growing at an incredible rate and impacting its culture at an incredible rate. In fact, the church in the third world, do you know this? It's growing four times faster than the Western church. Four out of every five Christi people that convert to Christianity today are converted in a non-Western, non-Caucasian church. Think about that. I guess it's cool, personally. In fact, as of last year, there are more, it became a fact that there are more non-Caucasian, non-Western Christians than there are Caucasian Western Christians. We always thought we were the leaders. We always thought we were the, kind of the forefront of the whole thing. Now we're the minority. Praise God for that. But why is that? <laughs> Robert. Amen. I appreciate Robert. But see, here's the deal. Why is that? They have all the miracles, the supernatural power of God, all the stuff happening. They're impacting their culture. And we, what is our Christianity? We go to church. <laughs> That's the Christianity. And we're losing grip on our culture. Why is that? And I believe the bottom line answer is this. Because people, Christians in the third world, believe in the power of God in a supernatural way. And in fact, they need the power of God in a supernatural way. And they believe that when they need God, God will come through. The way you evangelize in third world countries is not by passing out tracts about the four spiritual laws and it's not by doing a lot of theological argumentation, a lot of rationalistic talk or whatever. The way you do evangelism for the, for the most part in third world countries is by showing, by demonstrating that God is the true God in opposition to all the false God that people have been, been believing in. You show that Jesus Christ is more powerful than the God of this tribe. How, how the Lord God is, is, is more mighty than the God of this tribe. You show how though this, this tribal God maybe can heal people, that happens, yeah, and maybe can seem to deliver people, that happens, and maybe can change people's lives, that happens. You show how Jesus Christ does it better. You need God to come through in a supernatural way. If you're ever going to win anybody, win any kind of credibility in the third world, you need the power of God and to believe that God will come through when they need them. They have faith and they exercise that and they walk on that. 
But see, I, in, the, in, in this first world environment, in this Western secular world environment, I, li- I live in a culture where we have been conditioned to rule that out. I live in a culture, you live in a culture where people, it's hard to convince them of the revelation of God when they don't believe in revelation in the first place. They, most, a lot of times, don't believe in God in the first place. They don't believe in a spiritual realm in the first place. It's very hard to make headway with that. But even worse, the church has been influenced by this secular worldview. And the church of the last three centuries has been largely, has been largely a, a non-supernatural church, an anti-supernatural church because of this Western assumption. This is why when we do evangelism, it's usually, and this, I'm not downgrading this at all. I'm just saying we limit it to this. It's, it's explaining four spiritual laws. But see, all this is beginning to change. There's been a stronghold on the culture and a stronghold on the church which has fundamentally denied the reality of the spiritual realm. But that stronghold is lifting. A veil is lifting and things are beginning to change. Without giving up on science and technology, our culture is going back to a more third world perspective and saying that the scientific worldview didn't explain everything. It didn't answer the hunger of our souls. And people are beginning to move out and test and hunger for spiritual realities. And that's a good thing. A veil has been lifted, which is sort of, as it were, brought out of hiding. Spiritual forces on the one side, the culture side, and spiritual forces on the church's side. And that's a good thing. For the last 300 years, I really believe that Satan has had a kind of a tactic. A tactic of hiding. A tactic of of staying in secret. By convincing the culture and convincing the church that he didn't really exist or he really wasn't important, that the spiritual realm really wasn't anything to dabble with, he made us think that there wasn't a battle going on at all. And that's the worst kind of tactic at all because there's no worse enemy than an enemy that you can't see. There's no harder battle to fight than a battle against someone that you don't even think exists. What's happening now? is that the veil is being lifted, and on both sides, uh, the forces are coming out of the closet. Uh, we're laying down the gloves. We're putting our, all of our cards on the table. We're calling each other's bluffs, and now things are becoming a little bit more overt, and they look a little bit crazy, but it's really a positive thing. We're seeing, in a real way, the reality of evil erupting in our culture. And that seems like a bad thing, but really it's a good thing because it's been there all along, but it's been in hiding. Now at least we see what we're up against. And now we're in a position, very much the position of of Christians in the third world where we need God in a powerful way if we are going to evangelize in this new age. Because more and more people are, are, are less and less convinced of rationalistic arguments and they're less impressed with tracts and things of that sort. What they want is reality. What they want is truth. What they want is experience. And the way that will be decided is by God showing that whatever else the New Age may offer, whatever experiences the New Age may offer, whatever healings that they claim to offer, whatever uh, supernatural insights they claim to offer, God does it better. God does it truer. God can heal better. It's a demonic thing that Edgar Cayce and Gene Dixon and, and Nostradamus and J.Z. Knight and, and Elizabeth Clare Prophet, it's, it's a demonic thing, or at least largely a demonic thing. When they can foretell the future and when they, can, they claim to have healings and they claim that some of them claim they can levitate and they claim that uh, ascended masters can speak through them and they claim that they can remember past lives and they claim that they can give people an experience of astral projection or what have you. It's a demonic thing. More overt than what we're used to in this culture. But it provides for the church a wonderful opportunity for us to say, God, we need you to show off yourself 
that you do this stuff better. We need you to show that you've got more powerful than whatever God they claim to be clinging to. You transform life more thoroughly. You revolutionize lives better. You give a peace that they can never give, and you give a joy that they can't give. And you're a healing God, and you're a God who also has prophecy, and you give, the, and you give gifts of the Spirit to the church to show that God is a reality that is more fulfilling than anything that the New Age would ever offer. And that's the challenge to the church today. The good news is that I see the church rising to the occasion. As, the, as, as this demonic stuff becomes more overt, I see the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God becoming more overt. I really believe, and it's my job to stay up on this stuff. Okay, that's why I get paid for at Bethel. So, okay, there, I just established my credibility. <laughs> the church today is moving in a way that it hasn't moved before. Or at least not for a long time. I really believe that the church of 1993 is a more fired up, more energized, more supernaturally infused church than it was 10, 20 years ago. I really believe that. I really believe that we're taking spiritual things more seriously. We're rising to the occasion. As both forces are coming out of the closet, it's more overt, it's more explicit. People are learning how to rely on the Spirit of God. The old naturalistic, this-worldly perspective that the church has had no longer works. And that will be increasingly true in the decades to come. But Christians are waking up to this. Consider one fact. In 1975, there were two books published by all Christian publishers on spiritual warfare. And they didn't sell well, and people thought these people were crazy for publishing this book. Two books. In 1993, 1992, there was 148 books published on spiritual warfare. Now, some of that is outlandish stuff. Some of that's demon paranoia. Some of that's Benny Hinn kind of stuff. And, and, and we can account for that. But the reality of the thing is that people are taking it seriously. People are really, people are, are aware of that. This is a reality they're beginning to move in. And the, and, and the Spirit of God is, is really raising up a church that no longer relies just on their own thinking, their own wisdom, but on the power of God. The Lusain Conference of 1990, the largest gathering of evangelicals around the world in all history, what did they talk about? Intellectual proofs for Christianity? No. They talked about spiritual warfare. And they gave testimony after testimony after testimony of how people, when they engaged in spiritual warfare and did spiritual warfare and prayed, how walls came tumbling down. Unevangelized areas were opened up. Communist walls came down all over the place. We saw that on a global scale. That's because people had taken the, the power of God seriously. The cutting edge of where the Spirit of God is moving is in opposition to this cutting edge of where demonic forces are moving. And it happens when people are waking up to the power that is there in Christianity. For so long, the church has been a sleeping giant with all this reservoir of God's power, but seemingly unable to use it because they didn't know that they needed to use it. But people are waking up to that. The cutting edge where the Spirit is moving is, is where people are learning what it is to walk in the Spirit, what it is to receive from the Lord gifts of the Spirit, what it is to demonstrate the kingdom of God and not just talk about the kingdom of God. And what I want to be more than anything else, and what I believe this church wants to be more than anything else, is on that cutting edge. On that cutting edge, because it's good news. It's good news because this is a battle that Christianity can win. This is the kind of thing Christianity was made for. This is the worldview that Paul lived in, the worldview that Elijah lived in. This is more of a biblical worldview where there are overt demonic forces, and we call on the Spirit of God to use us in opposition to that. And all that, I think, is good news. It's good news. It's not something to be afraid of. I want to uh, outline the basic beliefs of the New Age. Give me another hour and a half and I'll do it, okay? So sit tight. <laughs> Just kidding. 
There's five fundamental beliefs of the New Age. This morning I'm going to talk about the first one. And then next week we'll talk about four. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'll get through and so important, it is really so important that we get this down. Because otherwise you don't know what to look for. You don't understand what you're looking for. You just sort of, if, we're, if we are not on the guard, as Paul says we must be, if you're not on the guard about the culture, you're a product of the culture. And so at the very least, so as not to be influenced by this, we need to be aware of it. And that's what I'll be doing in the next 10 minutes and then uh, next week. Laying out in outline form what are the basic beliefs of the New Age. First, when you understand, to understand any religious movement, any philosophy, you first have to understand what is its source of authority. What is the ultimate grounds upon which this movement defines what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad? What is the ultimate religious authority? For Christians, it's the Bible. For, 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 for Muslims, it's the Quran. For Moonies, it's the divine principles of Sun Young Moon. For Mormons, it's the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. What is the source of authority? For the New Age, the source of authority ultimately, as, as diverse as this is, the ultimate source of authority is personal experience. Personal experience. Michael Harner, the famous anthropologist who wrote a book called The Way of the Shaman, trying to bring ancient shamanism, which is soul travel in ancient tribes, he's trying to bring it to the West. He writes in his book... You don't need to believe in anything I'm telling you. You just need to try it. And if you try it, you'll experience it. It will be verified for you. I'm not asking you to take anything as dogma. I'm not taking, asking you to take anything as doctrine or as a theoretical system. I'm just saying try this. Put on this drum music and meditate in this way and see if it doesn't start to work for you. It reminds one of what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, where the group that Paul was against had a lot of visions, and they were puffed up in that. You know what I've seen? I've seen angels. I've seen myriads of angels. I've seen auras. I've traveled the earth. I astral project. Puffed up in their own mind about what they have seen. That's very much the kind of philosophy that we're dealing with here. People hungry for experience and claiming to have experience. And that's what the New Age offers. In this cultural revolution that we're really a part of here, People no longer want to be told what to believe and, and, and be told to take it on faith. They don't want that. What they want is experience. They want something that's going to make a difference in their life, something that's going to change them, something that they can really for themselves in a personal way experience. And the sad thing is that they don't believe the church offers that. Because to a large degree, the church of the last 300 years under the influence of secularism hasn't offered that. And so they believe that they have to go elsewhere, to the East, to Zen, to Buddhism, to Hinduism, if they're going to find experience. And so what the New Age offers people is a plethora of experiences. You can have experiences, and there's a plethora of promises that they give you. You can experience peace like you've never dreamed. You can experience visions. You can astral project. Shirley MacLaine says that you can go out of your body past the moon towards Mars, attest to your body by nothing but a gold umbilical cord. I'm not kidding. That's what she says. You can, you can experience that for yourself. With, through, through crystals, you can experience great power. Through channeling, you can experience great wisdom. You can experience, yes, you can experience Godhood. Your oneness with all things, you can experience that. And they promise that. And to a large degree, it seems as though they deliver that. Remember the verse of Proverbs which says, There's a way that seems right for a person, but the way thereof is destruction. 
You can have an experience that seems so real, it seems so genuine, it seems so true. How could it possibly be false? That's why you're taken captive. Paul says, don't be taken captive. You're captivated because you can't even see how wrong it is. It seems so right, but the end thereof is death. The principle to be gleaned from that is this. Experience in and of itself cannot be our sole guide to truth. Experience in and of itself can't be our sole guide to truth. Before I was a Christian, I had some really incredible experiences. I bet none of you, or few of you, have experienced the kind of things I've experienced. I've had visions. I've had hallucinations. Now, they were drug-induced, but I had them. (laughs) I one time, I don't know if I've shared this here before, but one time, bought some mescaline. And I thought, you know, this is supposed to be a nat. This isn't like LSD. This is a kind of a natural hallucinogenic. And, and I always took drugs to find truth. And I thought, well, you know, I know that this is kind of an ancient practice in American Indians, among American Indians, so maybe I'll try it. The guy said when he sold it to me, you know, take a half. Don't take any more than a half. So he took three hit whole hits, um, six times what he recommended, and redefined what it was to be stoned. And I sat there at this Christmas party, we were reading the I Ching, which is an uh, Eastern Taoist book, and it talks about how all things blend together and how there's a yin and the yang, and every opposite involved, it, it, you know, entails its opposite, and every antithesis leads to a new synthesis and all this other kind of stuff. And I was meditating on that on three hits of mescaline, and in the middle of this Christmas party, all of a sudden the Christmas tree began to melt. And melted into the floor, and then I began to melt into the floor, and then I melted into the tree. And then we both melted into the wall, we melted into all people, and we formed this humongous concentric cycle here in this room. Everything was blending into everything else, flowing into everything else. We were all melting into one. And I was so full of euphoria, I was ecstatic. I finally found what I'd always been looking for, the key to the universe, the key to peace. I'm one with all things. There are no opposites, there's just opposite side of the coin. I'm the tree, and the tree is me. And I stood up and told everybody that. I can't tell you how euphoric it was, how, how, how much I believe this. And I quickly ran to the other room and I got a pen and I started writing it down. I didn't write it down, it just melted out of me. There it was. <laughs> For the rest of that evening, that's all I did was, was melt into the paper, pouring forth the wisdom of the revelation that I was receiving. It was euphoric. Incredible experience. The next afternoon when I woke up, with my head aching, there is... A, my brain was fried, and I looked at this piece of paper, actually about 12 pieces of paper that I had melted into, expecting to find great revelations, trying to recall what I was thinking. And on this paper, there was nothing but twaddle, nonsense, garbage, stupidity. No two words made sense together. And a light went on. This was about six months before I became a Christian. A light went on. That maybe, just maybe, this isn't the way to find truth. Maybe there was something deceptive about that experience, but it seems so right. It seems so convincing. How could it be wrong? How many people melt in this world? And I got this great opportunity. How could it be wrong? And yet it was nothing but deception. It did no more good than fry 30 million brain cells, which explains a lot of my behavior nowadays, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't clap. How dare you clap? You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, no, Greg, we don't detect any lack of brain cells. Look at Paul says, though we are an angel from heaven, an angel uh, of light in great majesty and great magnitude, even if an angel comes down and, and overwhelms you with his power and beauty and grace, 
if as a result of that encounter, something comes about that isn't consistent with the word of God, let that angel be anathema. It really means let him go to hell. Let him be cursed. Let him be damned. Run in the other direction. Ultimately, it has to be the word of God given by God and verified by God and verified through prophecy and verified through Jesus Christ who rose on the third day and showed himself to be the son of God and endorsed it. That has to be our criterion for truth. And if our experience, however wonderful, lines up with it, great. But if our experience, however wonderful, doesn't line up with it, then let it be anathema, run in the other direction. I don't care if it's a Christmas tree that melts in front of your eyes, and I don't care if you do astral project on a golden umbilical cord past the moon, and I don't care if you do remember past lives, and I don't care if the, the, your zodiac and horoscope and Ouija board does predict who you're going to marry. If it's against the scripture, and all of that stuff is, run in the other direction. Because there's a way that seems right to a person, but the end thereof is, is death. We have to understand that Satan is a supernatural being. In terms of power, second only to God. We have to understand that Satan is called the God of this age, has dominion in this world. So he's not above doing some tricks. He can do tricks. He can do impressive tricks. In the Old Testament, he turned a bunch of sticks into serpents. He can do that kind of stuff. If, if he needs you to levitate to be convinced, he'll make you levitate. A lot of the miracle claims and transformations and all the other stuff that is claimed by some of these new, new age practitioners, some of it is nothing but a bunch of phony, forgery, money-making schemes. But I think some of it's actually true. And it's demonic. Don't be impressed. Don't be impressed. When you hear about these sorts of things going on, wondering, oh, maybe they've got some truth. Maybe there's something to it. Because Satan's capable of doing that. Don't be deceived. Don't be held captive to it. Experience in and of itself is no criterion for truth. At the same time, let me conclude with this. The alternative to New Age experience isn't to offer a religion that has no experience. The alternative is to offer a religion and, re and move in a relationship that is full of experience. Because see, though we don't always live in this, maybe sometimes we never live in it, but when Christ Jesus dwells within you, you have available to you the power of God. And that means you have available to you a kind of peace, a kind of joy, a reservoir of transformation that makes all the astral projection, levitating Ouija board experiences look like nothing because there's no power like the power of God. And there's no peace like the peace of Jesus Christ. What we're called as Christians in this new age to be are Christians who increasingly quest after more than just a dogmatic system. But we long for an experience of God in our worship time, in our private devotions, in our celebrations. We long for the reality of God so that we can offer that to these people who are hungry. They're really hungry. And now, thank God, they know they're hungry. That's why they're chasing it. They're hungry for something real. And Christianity is the reality that they're hungering for. But only when we show them that it's real as opposed to all of these false surrogate gods will they be convinced by it. God's calling us in that direction. Let's stand. I'm going to close in prayer, and I want you to know that the altar here is open if you have any need in your life, especially if you're wrestling with some of this stuff, if you have, are feeling uh, at all attacked by this, or if you're feeling under the influence of this, or if you're just hungry for some of that experience that we're talking about. 
The altar is open, and I invite you to come forward. There'll be people up here who would like to pray with you. Uh, and if the Lord so leads you, please come forward. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word because your word is the only thing that keeps us out of the fog. It's the only thing that keeps us orientated. Your word is the one thing that can keep us on the track when there's so many other voices, so many other surrogate powers, so many other surrogate gods calling us aside. I thank you for your word, Lord. And I pray, God, that you'd install in each one of us a conviction to be committed to your word, though an angel who appears to be from heaven tells us something different, Lord God. Guard us and keep us in your truth. But also, Lord God, equip us to reach out to the millions who are being deceived. Wake us up, Lord God, to see and discern truth from error and have something to offer people which alone they are hungering for, but hungering in all the wrong places. Equip your people, Lord God, to go out and do your work. In your name we pray. Amen.